a glimpse at Rashi's commentary to the Bible indicates that he was aware of the world around him. That's very clear. If you look on the source sheet, which you have in front of you, already in Sefer Shemot, when he gives his commentary on the, on the ephod, Rashi writes, and an ephod, I have not heard nor have I found in a breitah an explanation of its design. Notice what he writes. He hasn't heard and he hasn't found. That means Rashi was looking. I don't know, when I was a girl and being raised in America and I learned about Rashi, I felt like everything came to me in Ruach HaKodesh. Okay? Yes, he was a genius. Before, the, before there were computers, he knew all of Tanakh by heart. But he also searched. So it's such a telling comment, what he just tells us here. I have not heard nor have I found in a bright an explanation of its design. But my heart tells me that it was belted around his back and its width is that of a width of a man's back, like the apron, which is called a porcent in Old French with which the noble women gird themselves when they ride the horses. Rashi is looking around the world around him, and he's saying that, I think the ephod is similar to, to the apron that the noble women in France would, ro- you, would wear when they rode horses. What a beautiful comment. The fact that Rashi's willing to write this in his commentary. He's willing to say, I see what the noble women are wearing, and, and using... <laughs> I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be polemical, but how beautiful and how honest Rashi is in this comment. Um, another place where we see that he was fully aware of what was happening in the world around him in in ancient in France in the 12th century is in Sefer Shemot when it says regarding the Kohanim and you shall fill their hand. Rashi goes on to say, any filling of hands in Scripture means inauguration. In old French, when a person is appointed and to be in charge of something, the ruler puts on the hand of the one being appointed a leather glove, which they called in old French gants. So here again, Rashi is talking about the investiture ceremony, inaugurating a, a secular ceremony, and Rashi is well aware of it. He's aware, well aware of the details, and he's using that piece of information to try to elucidate something in the biblical text. We see that he was connected to the world around him also in his she'elot and tuvot, in his responsa. And I just want to read to you a few of the topics with which some of the responses deal with, and you do not have this in front of you. Um, we learn from his response that Jews would, go into, would often go into co-partnerships with non-Jews in the use of their baking ovens. It was not uncommon to find them living in the same courtyard. There was a custom among the Jews that during the, uh, the holiday of Purim, they would distribute gifts to their Christian domestic servants. And Rashi did not like this, and he opposed this in his response. We also read in his responsa that non-Jews are in the habit of sending gifts to their Jewish neighbors on the eighth day of Pesach, such as cakes and eggs. And Rashi himself used to receive these gifts. All right, so if we look at his Bible commentary, a very, a very quick glance, we look at his responsa, Rashi was connected to the world around him. Not only was he connected to them and was he aware of in terms of social and business contacts, but today we're going to investigate Rashi's comments regarding Christianity. Rashi lived in Christian France. Christianity was all around him. And we're going to see how that comes to the forefront in its commentary to Mishle. Rashi's Mishle commentary, it contains two types of polemical statements. A polemical statement is a statement, an aggressive statement regarding the opinions or the principles of another religion, another idea, or in this case, Christianity. And we have to stop and ask ourselves a question. What motivated Rashi to write a commentary? What pushed him to write a comment? And for years, the accepted opinion was something in the biblical text pushed him to write his commentary. There was a problem with language. There was a problem with context. 
and that's what precipitated his writing the commentary. Many of us were raised with makashel Rashi, right? What's, what's difficult to Rashi? Recent scholarship agrees with that, but adds a little nuance and says in most cases, in most cases, Rashi was, um, he was motivated because there was a problem in the text. But sometimes, Rashi comments because there's something very, very important that he wants to say. There's some, there's some principle or idea that is so pressing to him that he's going to add it to his biblical commentary, even if there is not a difficulty in the biblical text. So when we talk about Rashi's polemics, his polemical comments, we're going to see that in most cases, there was no reason for Rashi to write what he wrote. The reason he wrote what he wrote is because he was being, there was an idea that he wanted to get across to the people. And he adds it to his commentary, even though there was no difficulty in the text. Now, Rashi's polemical comments can be divided into two types. We have explicit polemical comments. Explicit, it's clear, very, very clear. And that's the majority of his polemical comments in his commentary to the Bible and also in his commentary to Mishlei. And that's what we're going to investigate first. And the second type of polemical comment is implicit. It's hidden. It's veiled. You, as the biblical reader, have to read between the lines and try to pull out from Rashi's commentary what is he trying to say to us. The first explicit theme that we're going to look at is the theme of the Isha Zara, the foreign woman. The theme of the foreign woman, uh, the Zara, and sometimes Rashi calls her a Zona, is like a thread that runs through the whole book of Sefer Mishlei. She appears at least five, six, seven times, and three times in his commentary to Mishlei, Rashi gives a detailed commentary regarding this woman. I want to first read the text before we read Rashi to give you an appreciation of what or what this woman is. And we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to just read it in English because it's a little bit quicker. You can open up your Tanakh. You're more than welcome. Perek Bet. One second. Okay, it's not on your sheet. It's not on your sheet. It's not on your sheet. Okay, so we're starting with chapter... We're sorry, I'm sorry, we're starting with chapter 2. It's verse Tedzayin, which is 16. Okay, verse 16. Okay, the biblical text, Mishlei writes. And you're in a few minutes going to say, that can't really be in the biblical text. Okay, so you can go home and check these because the descriptions that you're going to read, I think, are going to shock you a little bit. All right, so Mishlei says, To save you from a strange woman, from a foreign one who makes her words smooth, who deserts the Lord of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks to death, and her path leads to the dead. No one who goes to her returns, neither do they achieve the ways of life. Okay, that's the first time she appears in chapter 2. The second time she appears in detail is in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9. Well, actually, in chapter 5, we'll start with verse, we can start earlier, we'll start with verse, start with verse 1. My son, hearken to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, to watch your thoughts and your lips shall guard knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drip honey, and her palate is smoother than oil, but her end is as bitter as wormwood, as sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet descend to death, her steps near the grave. Lest you weigh the path of life, her paths have wandered off and you shall not know. And now, children, hearken to me and do not turn away from the things of my mouth. Distance your way from her and do not draw near to the entrance of her house, 
lest you give others your glory and your years to a cruel one. Lest strangers be sated with your strength and your labors be in the house of an alien. And you shall moan when your end comes, when your flesh and your body are consumed. And the third time that she appears in great detail is in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 5. And this is the most graphic detail. To guard you from a strange woman, from an alien woman who talks smoothly. Far for from the window of my house, through my lattice I gazed, and I saw among the simple, I discerned among the youth, a lad devoid of sense, crossing the street next to her corner, and he walks on the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening of the day, in the pitch darkness of the night, and behold, a woman was coming toward him, the nakedness of a harlot with her heart besieged. She is bustling and rebellious. Her feet do not dwell in her house. Sometimes she is in the street, sometimes she's in the square, and she lurks at every corner. She takes hold of him and kisses him brazenly. She says to him, and I have to bring peace offerings. Today I paid my vows. Therefore I have come out toward you to look for you, and I found you. I have bedecked my couch with covers and with superior braided work of Egypt. I fan my couch with mirth, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our, take our fill of lovemaking until morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with amorous embraces. For the man is not at home. He has gone away on a long journey. He has taken the bag of money with him. As the appointed day, he will come. She swayed him with her talk. With the smooth talk of her lips, she entices him. He follows her immediately as an ox goes to the slaughter and as a viper to the chastisement of a fool until an arrow splits his liver as a bird hastened to a snare and he does not know that it is the cost of his life. Okay, these are three descriptions of this foreign woman and there are more. So let's see. How does Rashi deal with this foreign woman? So if you look on your sheet um, in the box, in the box source, this is Rashi's first comment regarding the strange woman. He says, Me'isha zarah, beware of a strange woman. shel zarah hi An assembly of idolatry, this is minut, this is Christianity. Zeu minut, this is Christianity. Vizo avodah zarah, this is idolatry. Shehi prikat ol kol hamitzot which removes all the yoke of mitzvot of commandments from upon you. Kishacha el mavet beita, her house sinks to, into the death. Haba el beita, someone comes to her home. Shach umachlik b'midron haderech el mavet. She will slip and she will fall into death. V'hatorah tishamer elecha me'nefilazo. But the Torah can save you from this fall. Harei davar gadohu lecha. It's very important to you. Rifaim, it says that you will go into the dead. Nirpi miderech hatov. You, you um, veer from the good way. You are weakened by the weak way. There's nothing to uphold you. Until you reach Gehenim. You will not return. It's difficult to return from it. So Rashi is making five very important points regarding Misha Zara. And the first point that he makes is that the Isha Zara, the foreign woman, is a metaphor for Minut. Now, what does the word minut mean? The word minut means Christianity, that the foreign woman is a metaphor for Christianity. And we know that Rashi means Christianity because if you look at source A, in Rashi's commentary to the book of Daniel, Rashi says very clearly, Kigon haminim, the minim, talmidei yeshu hanotsri, the students of Jesus. All right? We'll talk, we're going to come back to this comment later on. So Rashi is clearly telling us that this foreign woman is a metaphor for Christianity. The next point Rashi makes is that Christianity is avodah zarah, it's idolatry. And I, want, I beg you, leave the modern world of Israel 
U.S., England of 2012-13 and go back to the Middle Ages. What is Rashi saying about Avodah Zarah being idolatry? It was all around them. It was visible. No matter where they went, they saw physical manifestations of Christianity. And I just want to read to you from a, a historian named Anna Sapir Abulafia, and she writes regarding Christianity. She writes, For no Jew could go many steps in his or her town without being confronted by some kind of representation of Christianity in the form either of a Christ on the cross or a wayward shrine or a Christian religious procession. When Rashi says that the Shazara Christianity is Avodah Zarah, we think of an intellectual, we think of it as an intellectual identification. Yes, they believe in the Trinity, that's idolatry. The medieval Jew did not think in intellectual terms. The evil Jew saw it in emotional terms. All they saw were signs, manifestations of Christianity. That was Avodah Zarah. They were repulsed by these statues and shrines all around them. And Jacob Kassif, a famous uh, historian, writes, for a Jew to convert to Christianity in the Middle Ages, the number one deterrent was overcoming this repulsion to physical symbols. So when Rashi says here it's idolatry, they felt that it was idolatry. And we'll see that, we're going to see that later on. The third point that Rashi makes is that it's the prikat ol mitzvot, that Christianity is the removal of the yoke of mitzvot. And we know, or we've heard, that Christianity believed that the nature of mitzvot of commandments was transitory, and that once Jesus died for the sake of, of humanity, there was no need for mitzvot anymore. And the Christians could not understand why the Jews held on to these rituals. Why did they keep mitzvot? Why did they see the light? Why did they understand the truth? And they believed it was because the Jews were blind. And I just want to... Okay, now this is a famous statue from Strasbourg, and it was found throughout Europe. It's the statue, there are two, the statue of two women. On the left side, it's a statue of the church, the ecclesia, and on the right side, it's a statue of the synagogue. Notice the synagogue. Notice the statue on the right, the church is standing straight, head, head, head forward. There's, there's pride. We are the right religion. We are the true religion. They're holding in their hand the cross, and they're also holding like a goblet, and I read up on it. I don't know much about medieval art. The goblet, they believe, was used to collect the blood of Jesus after he was crucified. To the right is the synagogue. Notice, where is she looking? She's looking down. She's humbled. She's depressed. Notice that she's holding in her hand, it's supposedly the Ten Commandments, it's down because it's not really working. Okay? In, in, in Galut, the Jew is, is humbled. And what is over her face? Can you see? There's a blindfold. And this portrayed the blindness of the Jew. If the Jews cannot believe in Christianity, if the Jews really believe they had to keep commandments, it must be because they're blind. And this statue, was, these pictures like these and statues like this were throughout Europe. And that's what the Christians believed, that the Jews were blind. So when Rashi says to the Jew, Avodah Zarah is the removal of the yoke of mitzvot, the Jew understood that very, very clearly. The third point that Rashi makes is, what will happen to a person who follows Avodah Zarah or Christianity or the woman, where will they end up? In Gehenna, right? They will end up in Gehenna. He mentions that three times in his commentary to throwing woman, and realize Gehenna is not a biblical theme. In the Bible, we do have something called Gay Ben Hinom, 
And Gei Ben Hinnom was an area in Yush, outside of the walls of Yerushalayim, where the Jews used to sacrifice, where not only Jews, they would sacrifice to Molech. But the idea of Gehenim, that we call it, a place where people go after they die in order to be punished for their deeds, is a rabbinic motif. It's not found in the Bible. The very fact that Rashi is emphasizing the word Gehenom, he's trying to warn his reader, be careful. You don't want to end up in Gehenom. Be careful of Christianity. The next point that Rashi makes regarding the foreign woman is the difficulty in returning to Judaism. Um, Judaism differentiates between two types of people who can convert to Christianity. We have Anusim. Those are people who are forced to convert, otherwise they're going to be put to death. And the second category are Mishumadim, those that voluntarily um, convert to another religion. Rashi writes, okay, if you look at source number B, Lo Yishuvun, and this is from his Gemara in Avodah Zarah, Kol Hamish Tamdim Avodat Kochavim, Okay, those that convert to Christianity willfully do not return. And if they do return, they readily they die soon because of troubles and pain, and guilt. And it's decreed from heaven that that should happen to them. Rashi warns the community to treat those who convert to Christianity and return to treat them with respect. He allows a Kohen who converted to Christianity to come back to Judaism. He allows them to say the Birchat Kohanim. He demanded that they be treated with sensitivity and with, um, and with, with, with respect. And if you look at source number C, if we look at Rashi's responsa, his, it, it, it reads as follows. The question related to whether one must avoid the wine of Anusim until they stood by the repentance for a lengthy time and the repentance had become widely known and evident. And the Rabbi Rashi replied, God forbid one avoid their wine and embarrass them. For his heart was not any, for his heart was not in any libation. He was poor, he had poured for idolatry. And when they took it upon themselves to return to fear of God, they are considered to be fit. Okay, so Rashi was very, very careful that people treat them like Jews and treat them with respect. And according to the Rashi, obviously, the act of conversion did not affect the status of the, of, a, of the Jew, whether it be a man or woman. Now, this identification of the foreign woman, the strange woman, with Christianity is already found in the Gemara, in the Talmud, and that's source number D. The Talmud teaches us, I was once walking in the upper market of Tsipori when I came across one of the disciples of Jesus the Nazarene, Jacob of Tzchanya by, by name. Those words pleased me very much, and that is why I was arrested for Minut, for I transgressed the words, remove, remove yourself from her, which refers to Minut, and come not close to the door of her house, which refers to Rishut. The Gemara is equating Minut, sectarianism, with the disciples of Jesus, which is with Christianity. So Rashi adopts this identification of the foreign woman with idolatry from the Talmud. But we see very clearly that Rashi embellishes it, and he adds to it with these five specific points that we saw. Now, we would expect Rashi to talk about this woman the first time she appears in chapter 2, which we just saw. But to our surprise, on the very opening comment to Sefer Mishle, Rashi mentions her. If you look at source number E, Mishle Shlomo. I mean, you know, if you're an English teacher and you're, you know, you're writing your, the opening line to a story or to anything, you put a lot of thought into what you're writing. All right? So what does Rashi write on the opening line? 
All his words are images and proverbs and parables. Mashal et Torah b'isha tova. The Torah is compared to a good woman. Mashal avodah zara. And idolatry is compared to what? The isha zona. The chol the chen rov dvarav mashal. So of the hundreds of, of Mishalim and Sefer Mishlei, Rashi chose to open his commentary with mention of what? Of the Isha Zara. And then five verses later, when Rashi explains to us what is his exegetical program or goal for the book, we know that when Rashi wrote his commentary to the Bible, we are pretty aware of this, it's a dual commentary. It's often two-tiered. We have a simple explanation and we have what? The deeper explanation. So too in Sefer Mishlei. So what does Rashi write? We have to understand the straight, the, the deeper explanation and the straightforward. We have to understand both ways. When it says, when it says, beware of the foreign woman, it's talking about Avodah Zara. And also the simple explanation. So once again, Rashi focuses on the Isha Zara, Zara as being idolatrous, as being Christianity. And clearly, the fact that Rashi focuses so much on the theme of the Isha Zara throughout the book of Sefer Mishlei and identifies it with Christianity illustrates to us the great danger Christianity played in the lives of Jews in the Middle Ages. So that's the first explicit theme that we see regarding Abu Dazara. Let's wait for the end for questions. And then, okay, the second explicit theme that we see regarding Abu da- regarding um, Christianity is the um, seduction and enticement through speech. Pichoy v'hasata. The shoresh, the root, suit, or mesit, appears 15 times in Rashi's Mishlei commentary. And it's usually connected to the word mean, which means, as we know, a Christian. Okay, if you look on page number two, um, if we look at sources A and B, it seems like Rashi is preoccupied and concerned with the missionizing efforts of the Christians. On Proverbs 1.22, I just brought it for you in English to make it a little bit easier. It says, how long will you naive ones love naivete? And the scoffers covet scoffing. So what does Rashi write on the word ta'im, naive ones? They are the ones who are enticed by the words of the enticers and the Christians. And look at number B. To save you from an evil way, from a man who speaks perversity. On the words from a man who speaks perversity, Rashi writes, These are the Christians who are enticing the Jews to idolatry. Rashi is warning his people, beware of those Christians who are missionizing. Remember, Christianity and Judaism are debating about the same book, the Old Testament. And when they were missionizing, they were coming to the Jew and saying, look at this verse. This is what Christianity says. What do you answer? And we're going to see the Jew did not know what to answer. How, do we, how is, um, in terms of responding to the missionary? So look what Rashi writes in verse in number C. The, the text says, he who chastises the scorner takes disgrace for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man, that is his blemish. Now notice, this is a very, very general pasuk phrase. It's a, 
It could be applied to anything. Rashi is choosing it to applying to apply it to the missionary. So what does he write? Umochiach the Rasha Mumo. Mum hulo, it will be a blemish to him. Lemochiach to the one. Because if you try to reprove the person who's trying to missionize you, he's going to curse you. Okay, he's not going to listen. This is a warning. Don't talk to them. Don't even try to convince them of the rightness of your religion. He's so concerned that they will fall under the influence of the missionaries. He says, don't even answer. So who should respond? If a regular Jew can't answer, then who's going to respond? So the answer is in Rashi's commentary to Song of Songs, to Shir Hashirim. On the Pasuk, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes and your mouth's utterance like the finest wine. Rashi writes, Yuna Shadecha, make my words true. Don't be tricked after the nations. The leaders of your nation. They are the ones who have to answer. So that the younger ones, the little ones, can learn. And your answer should be like good wine. So Rashi is placing the responsibility on the leaders. And a similar idea we can see in the book Sefer HaChasidim, which was written in the 13th century. And I'll just read that to you. Rabbi Huda Hasid writes the following. Suppose a monk or a priest approaches a Jewish pietist to debate about the Torah. Even if, even if you are more learned than he, do not permit a less learned person to overhear your debates. The other person might be persuaded by your Christian opponent since he does not understand which position is the true one. Um, Rashi's sphere is great. We can see this. He's constantly referring to the missionizing efforts of the Christians. Look at source number E. May a bereaving bear encounter a person rather than a fool with his folly. So what does Rashi write? It's better for a person that a bereaving bear should come to him. Rather than a missionizer who's trying to convince him to convert to Christianity. Does Rashi's commentary reflect historical reality? What's this really happening during Rashi's lifetime? We do know, we do know that later on, starting from the 1200s, and certainly with the burning of the Talmud in the 1240s, that there's great debates that are going on, the famous debate in 1240 in Paris. But this is a little bit earlier. Was, was there really missionizing going on? Was there really debating going on? So historians say yes. Not to the same degree that would be later on, but there were things that were happening. We know that in 1031, there was a debate between a bishop and a Jewish doctor in Latich, and a doctor converted to Christianity. We know that Jews were forced at times to hear the sermons of the priests. They had no choice. In 1068, Peter Damien wrote a guidebook to be used during debates with Jews. And this genre of literature become, is called contra Judaeus or against the Jew. Christians would knock on Jewish doors. They would, go to, they would go to the church, and the priest would say, go to your Jewish neighbor and teach him the right teachings. They would knock on Jewish doors, and it's not like in modern America where you just don't open the door. Right? They had to open the, I don't know if they had doors, but they had to open whatever it was, and they had to stand there. Why their Christian neighbor or someone they knew or someone they didn't know would quote them a pasuk from Isaiah, from Zechariah, and give the Christian teaching, 
and they would not know what to answer. Later on, we're going to see that Jewish polemical manuals were written. It's an amazing thing. About a century later, we're going to have manuals where it's like um, missionaries for dummies. Well, all you had to do is you would open up the manual, you would find Isaiah, and then you'd find the Pasuk, and there it would tell you what you answer the missionary. This is going to be after Rashi's time, not during Rashi's time. But it does seem, it does seem like, based on historians, that yes, there was missionizing going on. This was a real threat, and the Jews really did not know what to answer. They were not well-versed enough to be able to answer the missionaries. How prevalent was this? So Rashi writes in looking source number F. She too will suddenly lurk and increase the faithless among men. And on this Rashi writes, Obogdim ba'adam tosif, Increasing in number are the Jews who are rebelling against God. And this is talking about Christianity. So Rashi is talking about okay? that this is a phenomenon. It is a large phenomenon in Israel. Now, is Rashi's comment an exaggeration? Were there really many, many Jews who were converting to Christianity during his lifetime? In his responsa, and not only his, but in responsa from the Middle Ages, we find many questions pertaining to apostates or those that convert to Christianity. And I'll just read you some of the questions that were raised regarding these Jews who converted. One, can they inherit their Jewish relatives when their Jewish relatives die? Two, must they give their wives a get after they've converted to Christianity? Three, do they have to... What about the mitzvah of chalitza? Remember, in the ancient world, it was... It was, no, I wouldn't say common, men would go away on business trips, they would never come back, and in order for the wife to remarry, we had to do the, either yibum or chalitza, so could the convert be forced to do the ceremony of chalitza? And also, could they be charged interest? We know a Jew cannot be charged interest, but a non-Jew can. Can someone who converted to Christianity be, convert, be charged interest? So all, we have many, many questions in response of Rashi and also others at that time period and later on regarding these converts. So maybe we can learn from here that what? That there really was a lot of conversion going on. But Professor Jeremy Cohn offers a word of caution. Okay, and that's source number G. Nevertheless, the existing primary sources are too scanty to allow for any qualif- quantification of medieval Jewish apostasy. The law had to account for the isolated as well as common occurrence. And rabbinic response typically deal with only with the particular case in point. Meaning, even if only one case warrants a question, that question is going to be asked and that question is going to be answered. So just because there are many responses regarding Jews who converted to Christianity doesn't mean that there were so many people that converted. A very important source is the next one, and that's H, and that's the response of Rabbi Tam, Rashi's grandson. And Rashi's grandson writes, Yoter me esrim gite mishumadim ne'esu beparis uvitzarfat. He talks about 20 bills of divorce of those that converted to Christianity, mishumadim, those who willingly converted to Christianity in the area of Paris. And Sarfat, has, they believe, means that province of where Paris was. And for years, scholars interpreted the number 20 as referring to over a period of time. Over a period of time, there was a need for 20 getim to be written. But recent research has sort of looked at the source differently. And recent research believes that really the number 20 is not reflecting over a period of time, but rather at a specific period of time happening at the same time. And Professor David Berger from Brooklyn College in, in source number I wrote this, something that he wrote in the last year or two. In the last generation, 
Arguments have been presented for a variety of theses that would have seemed implausible 30 years ago. The Jews were sorely tempted to Christianity and converted more than imagined. All right. So it would seem that when Rashi writes, that was not an exaggeration and that that was happening, it was not uncommon. Another theme, explicit theme in Rashi's commentary is theft and exploitation, gezel. Okay, if you look at page three, let's look at sources A and B. In source A, Sefer Mishlei writes, a charming woman draws near to honor, but strong men draw near to riches. And what does Rashi write on the words titmoch kavod? Knesset Yisrael, the Jewish people, tikrav tamid lekavod hakadosh baruchu, they draw near to God's glory, and to his Torah. The Aritzim Yitzmechu Osher, but straw men draw to riches. B'nai Esav, the sons of Esav, draw near to Gviat Mamon Vegezel, to exploit, to, to ta- the taking of money and to theft. Look at the next source B. The way of a lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is even. Rashi writes, he brings a second explanation regarding the hedge of horns. O Midrash Agada, the Midrash teaches us. Darkoshal Esav, it's the way of Esav. Kikotzeh, like this thorn. Hanisbach b'gizat ha-semer, that's entangled in a fleece of wool. Imatanot lo mikan, if you extract it from here. Hine mitare mikan, it entangles there. Kach, ein adam yachol atzei tidei alilotam belo mamon. So too, a person cannot extricate himself from, all, from false accusations without the taking of money. Now, who is this Esav that Rashi is referring to? Esav is a nickname, is a nickname for Rome. And Rabbi Akiva, it seems like, was one of the first of the rabbis who, who made this identification. When on the verse in Sefer Breshit, the hands are the hands of Jacob, but the, vo- the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esav, Rabbi Akiva said, the voice of Jacob shrieks at what the hands of Esav did to him at Betar. And Betar was during the Bar Kochla rebellion, and that was the end of the fight against Rome. So we see that Rabbi Akiva and those that followed him equated Esav with Rome. And when Rome became Christian in the 4th century, the equation began, became Esav equals Rome equals Christianity. Which means that whenever Rashi writes, not whenever, usually when Rashi writes something about Esav in his commentary, it's a code word for whom? For the Christians. And here he's accusing the Christians of stealing, of exploiting the Jew. The same idea can be found in the Crusader Chronicles from the First Crusade. We know, we know that at the end of Rashi's life, Rashi lived from 1040 to 1105. In 1096, we have the First Crusade, the Crusaders are on their way to the Holy Land to wrestle it from, the, from, from Islam, and on their way, when they go through Germany, they destroy the, the Jewish communities and they murder, murder, murder hundreds of Jews. The chronicle that the Jewish chronicle that was written later on um, reads the following. This is one of the chronicles. The leaders of the Jews gathered together and discussed various ways of saving themselves. The elders decided to ransom the community by generously giving of their money and bribing the various princes and deputies and bishops and governors. Then the community leaders who were restricted, who were respected by the local bishop approached him to negotiate this matter. They asked, what shall we do about the news we have received regarding the slaughter of our brothers in Germany and Spire and Worms? They answered, heed our advice and bring all your money into our treasury. Actually, 
They gave this advice. Um, they gave this advice so as to herd us together and hold us like fish that are caught in an evil net, and then to turn us over to the enemy while taking our money. This is what actually happened in the end, and the outcome is proof of their intentions. The bishop assembled his ministers for the purpose of helping us, for at first it had been his desire to save us with all his might, since he had given, we had given him and his ministers a large bribe in return for the promises to help us. Ultimately, however, all the bribes and entreaties were of no avail to protect us on the day of wrath and misfortune. Okay, so that we know that certainly throughout the, in the Crusader period, the bribes and the money that were taken, but at the end to no avail. The Jews were killed. Um, and Esau of Christianity being involved in the Crusades. What's so ironic about this equation of Esau being Christianity is that the Christian said the exact opposite. The Christian said, Esau is the Jew. And how do they explain it? They explain that in Sefer Breshit, we have the blessing, Rav Ya'avod Seir, the elder one shall serve the younger one. And Christianity said, Ra, the elder, the synagogue, the Jews, the first Israel will now serve whom? Will serve the church. And part of this concept of the Jews serving the church was the concept of Jewish servitude and Jewish humiliation and the levying of very high taxes and the exploiting of the Jew. Now, Christianity is equated with Esau, but Christianity is also equated and identified with all the family members of Esau. All right, so if you can just look at number four here, additional appellations, we have Amalek. We know that Amalek was, was um, Esau's grandson. Okay, on the Pasuk in Sefer Mishlei, the righteous one considers the house of the wicked. What is Rashi right? Maskil tzadik tzadiko shel olam, hu hakadosh baruchu, notein leid, God gives thought, lachri to destroy, bait rasha, the house of the wicked, Kegon Zecher Amalek, meaning the house of Amalek, meaning Christianity. Not only is a, um, Christianity, Christianity equated with Amalek, Christianity is also equated with Rome, because as we know, Rome became the major religion of the Roman, um, the seat of, of the Roman Empire and Christianity. And if you look in source number B, this, this pursuit comes from chapter 30 in Mishlei. And chapter 30 is describing four phenomena that leave no trace. And look what it says. The way of the eagle in the heavens. And then at the end it says, and the way of a man with a woman. Okay? It leaves no trace. And what does Rashi say on the words, the way of a man, derech hagever? Rashi wrote, zo romi. This is Rome. She'amra, that said, le'olam eheyeh gveret. I will rule the world. Okay? So... We see Esau, Amalek, Rome, all being equated with, with Christianity. Now, if you go home and you open up your regular Mikraot Gedolot, you might email me and say, you are not honest, because I don't find these comments in my regular Mikraot Gedolot. And that's true, because they've been censored out. The Christians understood very well what Rashi was trying to say, and Christian censorship demanded that these words often be changed. And we're going to talk about censorship in a few moments, but look now at our example, the word Romi, under where it says censorship. Do you see where that is? Okay, in the Lublin printing of the Mikraot Gedolot in 1623, instead of the word Romi, what word do we have? Edom. Now, Edom isn't really much better because Edom is also connected with Esau, but it would seem that for this censor, it was okay. Now, notice in Amsterdam, 1699, we have a mishmash. We have Edom, and then we have parentheses that say what? Romi. Whenever you see parentheses in Rashi, beware. 
It means that something went on with the text and go try to find out what the original text was. And the Warsaw edition of 1860, which is mostly what you have at home, most of the modern Mikrooktola are reprints of the Warsaw 1860. What does it say? Paras, which makes absolutely no sense. Okay? So censorship became a major issue in reading Rashi's commentary. And just for a moment, I want to talk a little bit about the history of censorship because I think it's fascinating. Stage one was when there was a con that was offensive to Christianity, they burned the book. Okay? We have the burning of the Talmud in Paris in, in, in the 1240s. Not only Jewish books. Any book that was deemed heretical was burned. There was great, a great outcry with the burning of books, and they, started, they decided upon a more sophisticated process, and that was censorship. And censorship is simply removing the offensive phrases regarding Christianity from the book. Now, who were the censors who actually did that? They were Jewish converts who knew Hebrew. And the one of the most famous censors was Damoniko Yerushalmi, And he was born, just to give you an idea, he was born Shlomo Vivas in Jerusalem in 1555. He studied in Svat. He studied to be a Rav. He studied Kabbalah. He was a Dayan. And he also became a doctor. And he moved to Paris and he worked as a doctor. And there he was so popular and he was so successful that he was taken to the, the Turkish court to be the doctor there. And at the age of 38, he converted to Christianity. He is responsible for censoring more than 20,000 Hebrew books. And how do we know that he censored it? Because on the stamp, the stamp of the censorship has the name of the censor. He compiled an index to help censors. How do they know what, how do they know what comments are offensive? What cut books and what comments? So he himself, he composed an index, and the index is called the Sefer Hazikuk, and in, uh, it's called the Index Esporagatoris, all right? And it lists all of the offensive comments in 426 Hebrew books, which is an enormous number. Um, so we need to beware of censorship. And I wanted to show you for a moment censorship from regarding a comment that we saw on page one. If you go back to page one, in Sefer Daniel, we saw that Rashi wrote that the Minim, the Christians, the, the Minim are the Talmidei Yeshu Hanotzri. So let's see what we have in manuscripts. So this is a manuscript which is found in the Vienna National Library. We have no manuscripts from Rashi himself. None have survived. Some believe that when the Talmud was burnt in, tw in the 1240s in Paris, Rashi's original manuscripts were burnt as well. The earliest Rashi manuscripts are from about 100 years after Rashi's death. In this manuscript, in the, and, and um, in the National Library in Jerusalem, They have microfilms of these manuscripts from, around the from the libraries around the world. So when I was working on Rashi, I didn't have to go to all these cities. I simply went to the National Library downstairs, brought a sweater because the rooms were freezing like the rooms in, in Herzog, and worked on the manuscripts. Um, I, did use, I did work with two in the original form, and I'll talk about that. So notice, in Vienna 24, this is a manuscript from the 13th-14th uh, century. Um, we see here, Kegon Haminim, Kegon Haminim, Talmidei Yeshu. All right, now notice, it's very hard to work with a manuscript. It's not user-friendly. There are no psukim. Notice on the side, I myself had to write psuk yud aleph. There are no dibarei hamatzchil, the opening words. I myself have to underline a dibarei hamatzchil. So when you're working through Rashi manuscripts, you don't know where you are. And you have to find yourself 
and leave marks along the way so that you can follow what Rashi is saying. All right, so this is Vienna 24, and it basically has the correct version. Okay, Kagon Haminim Talmidei Yeshu. It does not have the word Hanutzri. The next one, the next manuscript is from the British Library, also from about the same time period. Notice how each manuscript is handwritten. They look different. Some are very, very neat and pretty. Some are more sloppy. The time of the manuscript does not at all mean that it's a better or a less better manuscript. We'll talk about that. And in the one in the British Library, which I did see, I had a stopover once and I stopped in London and I got permission. And whenever I went to the library, I used this actual manuscript because there were certain words I couldn't read from the copy. It says here, Kigon Haminin, with a no, not a mem, Talmidei Yeshu. Okay, so, so to here, we have a manuscript with the original comment. Now we move to the manuscript, the Roma Cosentensal Manuscript, which, which is in the Roma Cosentensal Library, and it's from the 14th, 15th century. And look what happens. Kigon, the word minim is missing. Talmidei, now you notice this blank? It's been censored out. It's been whited out in modern terms. The word Yeshu was here. The censors whited out the word Yeshu, and it was censored. Now, usually the censorship was done by external censors, but the Jews, we know, were smart. And they knew that very often there were certain comments that were not going to make it through censorship. So they themselves did the censorship, so to be more careful and to be less sloppy. So we don't know if this was done by a Jewish censor or by a non-Jewish censor censoring the manuscript, but this is clear censorship to Rashi's commentary in his manuscripts. And this is the last manuscript I have to show you. This is um, in the JTS library. It's a very early manuscript. It's from the um, late 1200s, about 100 years after Rashi's death. This is an excellent manuscript. Um, here it's very it's, it's amazing. We have Kigon. Now you can see this was a nun sofit because they're very sloppy. I see the nun here. Haminim Talmidei Yeshu Hanotsri. The whole thing was whited out. And because the, the color of the manuscript wasn't white, it was like darker, so you can see it very clearly. I'm laughing. I'm thinking like I'm a, I'm a principal of a school, so we give out report cards. So I always say I only want white paper and not off-white paper because, you know, you have to correct something. With white out, if it's like off-white paper, you can see the white out. But if it's white paper, you don't see it. So here they used white on an off-white manuscript, and you see how it's been censored out. Okay? And this was very, very prevalent. This is in the manuscripts. Now, this is probably what you have at home. This is um, the Mikraokodolot based on the 1860 Warsaw um, printing. And if I can give you homework, I would say go home and check the Mikraokodolot that you have at home. Notice what, ha- what happens here. They eliminated the whole comment. The whole thing is missing. The Ula is in the manuscripts right before the comment that we saw, and then there's nothing. Okay, they've totally eliminated it. And when you use a regular Mikraokodolot, be careful because very often, very often, it's totally eliminated and you can't even, you don't even know that what? You don't even know that there was a polemical comment there and that censorship had occurred. Where do we put it back in? What? Well, we do. In this, I'm not plugging any specific brand, but um, Barilan University has the Ketzer series of, of Chumashim and Tanachim and there they've checked manuscripts not only for Rashi but other commentaries and they have inserted, um, so we have a more authentic version of Rashi. Okay, um, the last example of explicit um, polemic is, is ritual murder, Kiddush Hashem. Um, I think we might 
skip this for a moment, and if we have a chance at the end, we'll go back to it. How much time do we have? 15 minutes? 15 minutes? Okay, so we'll skip that. We'll go back if we have time at the end, because I want to whet your appetite a little bit for implicit polemics. Again, implicit polemics are what? Are reading between the lines. Hidden polemics in Rashi. And I found only two examples of hidden polemics in Rashi in Sefer Mishle. Um, example number one. Okay, Mishle Peregdalad reads, For I was a son to my father, a tender one and an only one for my, before my mother. And he instructed me and said to me, May your heart draw near to my words. Keep my commandments and live. According to a simple explanation, the father and son are a biological father and son. We know that the Sifrut Chachma, the wisdom literature, has many um, occasions where the son is talking, the father is talking to the son. Shema b'ni musara v'icha v'altitosh toratimecha. What does Rashi say regarding the father and the son? Who is the father and who is the son? So Rashi writes, Musar av, the discipline of your father, hakadosh baruchu. And skip down to the second line. Ki ben hayiti la'avi, I was a son to my father. Hanavi Omer, the, the prophet says, ben hayiti la'kadosh baruchu, I was a father to my to God. Shehishra rucho, a son to my to God. I'm sorry. Shehishra rucho alai, and he rested his spirit upon me. Umatzinu shekaro ha'kadosh baruchu le'shlomo ben, and we see that God called Shlomo a son when it says. I will be his father. So what is Rashi saying? Who is the father in a verse? God. And who is the son? Shlomo. And then because Rashi knows that it's very unusual to describe Shlomo as the son of God, what does he have to do? He has to bring a proof text. And he brings it to Pesuk and Sefer Shmuel, which is before, Shmuel, before um, Shlomo was born. David and Bathsheba had lost another child, and they're very concerned, and God says, don't worry, this child will be born, and he will be like a son to me. Now, why is Rashi bringing this interpretation, which does seem a little bit far-fetched, which doesn't seem the simple explanation of the text? Why is he going out of his way to say that the son is Shlomo? Because what were the neighbors saying? It was Jesus. And if you look at source number A, Remember I talked about earlier about those Jewish, those missionaries for dummies, right? The Jewish polemical manuals. This is, a, this is an illustration of one. This is called Milchamot Hashem, the Wars of God, and it's from the late 13th century. And what does it say? Amar the denier said, Hine Shlomo HaMelech, look, your king, Solomon, Amar B'Sefer Mishle, said in Mishle, Ubedivrei Chochmotav al Mishichenu. What is, the, what is the Christian saying? He's talking about our Messiah, meaning about Jesus. When he says, and then he quotes our Psukim here in Sefer Mishle, go to the third line. Mi Who is this person? And who does it say that he was troubled by his father? Who's he referring to? It's talking about our Messiah, meaning Jesus. So clearly, Rashi here, by saying Shlomo, is refuting the Christian belief that what? These verses are referring to Yeshu. But you won't know that when you read the commentary. This is implicit polemic. You need to read between the lines, see the, see the, the hints in the Pasuk in order to figure that out. The second example is from chapter 30 in, in Proverbs. In chapter 30 it says, Who ascended to heaven and descended? Who gathered wind in his fists? Who wrapped the waters in a garment? 
who established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is the name of his son, if you know? And on these verses, Rashi writes, Who me Allah Shamayim Vayered Kimoshe? Me Asaf Ruach Bechofnav, who who uh, gathered this wind in his hands, Piach Hakivshan, that's referring to the furnace when he when he collected the um the ash. Mitzarar Mayim, who um wrapped the waters, it's referring to Kafutamot Nitzvu Kemonet, it's talking about the Kriyat Yamsuf. When Moshe prayed before Kriyat Yamsuf. Mikim, who established, that's referring to the Mishkan. So Rashi is, is identifying these Psukim with Moshe, and he gives us his source. His source is the Psikta. Now move on. The next two lines are original to Rashi. What does Rashi write? Mashmo, what's his name? Umashem Benoam, what's his son's name? Oim Tomar, if you shall say, Kvar Haya Dugmato Avalmate. If you will say, there was someone like him, but he died. Amar, ask, Mashem Beno, what's his son's name? Ethan Mishpacha Yatstami Menu, what family emanated from him? Vene Damihu, and we'll know who he is. So why is Rashi introducing another, he's introducing the theme of another person, and he emphasizes that that person has died. What is Rashi, what is Rashi, and what does he go on to say? And check his family and see if he had sons and see if family emanated from him. Once again, what is Rashi refuting? That these, that these psukim are referring to, to Yeshu. All right? And in number B, which is another Jewish polemical ma- manual, and it's called Sefer Yosef HaMekaneh, on our verse in Sefer Mishlei, we read, Mashmo Mashem Benoki Deida, the Omrim Soririm. Okay? And they say, Kihu Medaber al Nutsri, that it's referring to Yeshu Hanutsri. And then, if we read it, the Gospel of John writes, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, the Son of God. David Berger writes regarding these few psukim in Sefer Mishlei, something which I found very powerful. He wrote, Indeed, a few verses seem so impressive that the persuasive force of any of them should in itself have caused the Jews to abandon their faith. So Peter the Venerable, with respect to Proverbs 34. The power, the power of these arguments. So how does Rashi refute this argument? Rashi refutes it from context. Rashi says, look at the very next verse. What's his son's name? What family emanates from him? Well, obviously, Yeshu had no children, had no family that emanated from him, and therefore what? This verse cannot, these verses can't be referring to Yeshu. And the most powerful arguments of the Jew to Christian exegesis was context. Most Christological explanations took a verse out of its context. And we see repeatedly that this was the number one weapon of the Jewish, the Jewish response to Christianity. You're taking it out of context, it makes no sense. I just want to say that incidentally, those words, avalmeit, you will not find those words of Almate in any of your Mikraot Kedolot. They have been censored out. So clearly, we might not see the implicit meaning, but Christianity did, and it was censored out. And the basic question I think that we have to ask now is, from where was not Rashi's knowledge of Christianity? Where did he know about what the Christians were saying? And it's important to point out that Rashi's knowledge was very, very basic. He doesn't, there's no law, great theological um, and, and um, philosophical treatises about the beliefs of Christianity. Very, very basic ideas. And it would seem that his knowledge came from his interaction with Christian neighbors 
and from the Talmud. Late, um, later on, we're going to see that generations later, that those that refute Christianity have a much deeper knowledge, and they actually read Christian texts, and they're much, there's a much greater philosophical discussion. Another source that Rashi could have had for Christianity was his grandson, the Rashbam. If you look at B, okay, if you look on your, on your sheet, the Rashbam says something in Sefer Shemot on the Ten Commandments. Lo tzachre, you cannot murder. Tshuva liminim, an answer, okay, to the Christians. The hoduli, what does that mean? And they said I was right. Rashi's grandson is talking to the Christians. He's talking about Bible. They are discussing Bible and Christianity. This we do not find regarding Rashi. But Rashi's grandson is debating, is conversing, and the conversation is going on. And he goes on to say the Rashbam, the Afalpi Sheyesh Besifrehem Ani Amit Veachyeh Belashon Latin. What is Lashon Latin? Latin. Rashi, the Rashbam is saying, even though it's in their books, Okay, the Volgata, the Latin translation of the text. It says, the translation of Ani Amit, the Echyeh, in Latin, I'll explain that in a moment. The Rashbam, it would seem new Latin. Either he knew Latin, or someone pointed out the Latin in the book. Alright? So even he, he says, so he, he says, even though it says in their book, in their Latin translation, on the words, Ani Amit, the Echyeh, Shel Lo Tirzach, Hem Lo Diktaku, meaning, the Vulgata, the, the Latin translation of the text, explains the verb lirtsoach and lahamit with the same Latin verb, osider. And the Rashbam is saying they were not precise. That in Hebrew, there are different types of murder. There's premeditated murder, non-premeditated murder, and therefore different words have different connotations. So the Rashbam is saying they were incorrect, and they admitted it to me. So another source for Rashi's knowledge of Christianity could have been his grandson, the Rashbam. Um... Why are there so many polemical comments in his Mishlei commentary? The book of Mishlei is like this nice book. It says, look at the world. Look at the values that we can learn. Look at the, the learn from the ant how to be industrious. Meaning, why in this commentary do we have so much polemical material? I can understand why we have polemical material in the book of Isaiah. After all, it's a very important book in terms of Christian theology. I can understand why in the book of Psalms we have a lot of polemical material. But why in Mishlei? And it's a very, very difficult question to answer. But the, based on research, the, the most basic answer seems to be because Rashi's commentary to Mishlei was written late in his life. It was written somewhere around the time of the First Crusade. When the, when the um, conditions in France, and obviously we know in Germany, were it was violence, sporadic outbreaks of violence, and things were getting more difficult. And Rashi's commentary is expressing the pain and the tension that the Jews were experiencing during that time period. I just want to end off by saying that um, Rashi was not living in an ivory tower. The opposite. Rashi was in the trenches with his people. And he uses his Bible commentary to strengthen his people and distance them from Christianity. What a sensitive, responsible Jewish leader. We need more of them today. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Oh.